This past week, um, I laid carpet for a week uh, in a customer's basement. I had a customer that they've been a customer for a long time, and they had a plumbing leak and, and destroyed a bunch of stuff. So it was sheetrock work and painting work and trim work. Uh, but probably the biggest job was new carpet in the whole basement. And uh, it was this it was a full basement. It was this big, thick, heavy carpet. And I have not laid carpet in a few years. Um, and so this is a pretty big project for me. And uh, you know how everybody says it's like riding a bike? You know, you're like, man, I haven't done this in a while. I'm like, ah, it's like riding a bike. Um, yeah, it was exactly like that. Last time I rode a bike, I couldn't walk for two days. So it was pretty much exactly like riding a bike. Um, it was just like that. Um, I remembered how to do it, but man, did it beat me up. I was sore. Um, and so the funny part was, though, uh, my power stretcher poles, if you don't know what that means, is it doesn't really matter. I hadn't used them in a while, and they were sitting in a place with a lot of humidity, so they got a little rusty. And so, uh, so Grace and I had spent a, about an hour, maybe more, sanding these things off, getting them silicone so that I could lay them on brand new carpet without, you know, dirtying the carpet up. And at one point, Grace was, you know, kind of lamenting how much I was moaning and groaning through this project. And she was like, um, didn't you lay carpet for like years? I was like, okay. Remember that power stretcher? That's like a metaphor. And she kind of looked at me and was like, I don't, oh, you're old and rusty and beat up. Yeah, I, I get it. And, uh, and I almost got offended, but no, she, she nailed it. Like, that's pretty much exactly <laughs> what was happening. I was still getting the rust off. Like, whew. Um, and, uh, anyway. Um, but the funniest, funnest part of, of carpet laying is that, um, especially when I'm with somebody who's never, like, done it before, is that almost every tool we use is a weird niche, like, specialty tool, which is one of the best things about carpet laying. Even the do-it-yourselfers have to hire a carpet layer. Mostly because nobody has all the weird little tools it takes to lay carpet. Like, nobody has carpet tools just laying around their garage, which is like job security, you know, which was awesome. Because even the guys that could do anything would still have to call me to lay carpet for them, um, which was cool. But it's also fun to, like, to watch people go through your toolbox, like these weird, bizarre-looking tools. What's this do? What's this do? What's this do? And you get to show all the all the stuff. So I spent uh, the week um, getting to explain all these weird, unique tools and of course, it made me wonder how these tools came to be. Um, my dad was a carpet layer, and he uh, and when he first laid carpet, they sewed it together with a needle. Like he still had his carpet sewing kit, and so he remembers when they first came out with the way we do it now. And like nobody trusted it at first. So the the old timers were still sewing it, and the young guys were like, "I cannot believe you still sew your carpet. Like you should try heat tape. It's so much faster." Like and so the, the, these things like develop over time. Every time you need like a weird tool, somebody comes up with an idea and makes it. In fact, I bought a new knife for this one. Um, that has come out, this knife has come out since the last time I laid carpet. It's only been a few years, but uh, it's exactly like the old carpet knife, only it has this, like, wrap-around thing that goes around your pinky because every single carpet layer, when they're cutting the baseboard, hits that spot where there's a nail sticking out just a little bit, and it just eats your pinky, just devours it. We all have big scar tissue over our pinky. And so somebody came up with a way to make the knife wrap around and protect that pinky. And I saw it, and I was like, immediately upon seeing it, knew what it did, and was like, I must have it. Like, I must have that. And so I bought, I bought the new knife. It's crazy how these things come up. Um, and, uh, you know, and, it, and this isn't just carpet tools. It's everything. I mean, Dale is a tool maker, like, and he's like a weird genius tool maker. People come in with an idea, and like in a weirdly short amount of time, they walk out with a tool. Because Dale was like, I can make that. And he makes it. And, and, uh, and that's, uh, it's, it's, it's crazy how these things pop up. The perfect tool for the perfect job is almost like miraculous. It's almost like magic. And this morning we're going to talk about the right tool for the right job. Um, and, uh, and we'll get into that more later. But first, let's review just a little bit. We're in our long summer series through the book of Romans, and we're using the tabernacle in the wilderness um, as our outline. And my wife told me to put a picture of it. She's like, you should have a picture of every week. And uh, so I'll do that next week. I didn't get a chance to put it in this week. Um, but, uh, but because we believe the gospel is not a new thing. Um, it's, not, it's not brand new. It's not even a New Testament thing. I think the gospel message is what God has been telling us since the moment um, humanity chose their own path instead of the, the path of God, the path that God had laid out for us. God has known the structure and content of the good news um, from the very beginning. 
And when we see the similarities in the structure of the tabernacle in the wilderness to those um, in the systematic layout of Romans, we realize that this is true. Um, which is honestly is why I think God said to Moses, you have to be really careful to build it exactly like I told you in the mountain. He says that over and over and over again in the Torah. In, in, the, in the book of Leviticus, as they're building the tabernacle, he's like, make sure you build it exactly like I showed you. I think it's because he was preaching a sermon. He was telling a story. This is what salvation looks like. Um, and, and that tabernacle tells the story. So, so far we covered uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3, which represent the door of the tabernacle, where the sinner would come. Um, to grips with their own sin uh, and become aware of their need for forgiveness. Paul condemns the lawless sinner, the religious righteous sinner, and then everybody who slips through the cracks um, in, those, in those chapters who try to hang on to self-righteousness in any form. Um, he states plainly that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Then in chapters 4 and 5, Paul takes us to the altar where the sacrifice is made to atone for sin. Um, Paul says that, that God makes that sacrifice on our behalf in the person of Jesus. Um, God's own Son is a free gift of grace for our salvation. And then Paul unequivocally declares us to be at peace with God. Um, we leaned hard into this. God makes this argument that if God would go to crazy lengths to save you when you were sinners, how much more grace is available now that you're part of His people? Um, it, it, if He was that gracious to His enemies, just imagine how good He is to his children. Um, and then last week we stepped from the altar uh, to the laver, this big um, bath where the cleanup process begins, um, stressing how important it is that we make our sacrifices before we clean up. We, that, that they don't necessarily overlap. And the big part of the structure of this book is a response, uh, at least the section we're in now, a response to the natural questions that come up if you try to apply chapters 1 through 5. Uh, if, if we really are at peace with God, if we really were all condemned by sin and unable to help ourselves, and God really did send Jesus to pay the price to save us, um, and things really are now good between us with God, then what do we do with all the rules? Like the natural questions that pop up in light of that environment that chapters 1 through 5 create, um, Paul now dives into those questions. Like, so, so then what? So now what? How do we live? Um, what do we do with, with, with everything the Bible says about how we should live? Paul continually refers to that idea as the law, the rules, the, the do's and don'ts, the expectations. And he asked four questions. Last, last week we dealt um, with the first question. Shall we just keep on sinning so we can receive more grace? Um, and all of us do this a little bit. We don't like it, but we'll, 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 know something's not quite right, but we also know God has grace, so we do it anyway. Um, and that's what Paul's saying. Do we go ahead and sin because we know there's going to be grace? And of course he says, no. Um, the, to answer this question, he actually makes a simple statement about the way things are um, since Jesus died on our behalf. His thesis is basically that we're dead, that we died. Um, the sinful part of us that wants to constantly rebel from God is dead. Um, this is actually a pretty powerful theology that basically says your relationship to sin goes like this. If you sin, you will die. He said that in the garden. It was the very first kind of contract covenant between God and man. If you sin, you shall die. And then he says on the cross, or, or more accurately, Paul says in baptism, that's what we do. We die. He says you're buried with Christ and you raise again to newness of life. So that death, that contract is paid. If you sin, you will die. We sinned and we died. That's paid. We don't owe that anymore. That's gone. So he's like, you're dead. That's done. You died. That, you paid that price. You paid for that, that covenant. Um, so you're no longer bound into this sin-death narrative. That's not part of the narrative anymore. Um, you are uh, freed from that entire story of sin and death. Uh, then Paul introduces a powerful concept with this Greek word, logizame. Um, I don't know if you remember that word, Lagadzame, last week. It's basically the idea that God told us what is real. You died. And it's our job to agree with that, to believe it. And it's not with the pistis belief that we're supposed to have in Jesus that's this relationship, um, faithfulness kind of belief. This is the mental belief. This is the Lagadzame, where logic It's where we get our word logic. It's the mental part. God said it. We agree with it, period. That's like that bumper sticker. God said it. I Lagadzame it. That settles it. Um, so, uh, so he said, you're paid, it's your job to believe that. I mean, you paid your debt, it's your job to believe that, to log it. Now today, 
We're going to look at um, what really changes if we do. Um, We're going to dive into if we truly believe that we are dead to sin, um, like Paul says we are, um, then what's that change? Uh, If we actually believe that what God said is true, things should change in our lives. Some things should should happen differently, and Paul's going to dive into that a bit. So we'll start with the full text, and then we'll dig in. This is Romans 6, verses 15 to 23. Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law... Does that mean we can just go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God, once you were slaves to sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you become slaves to righteous living. Because of the weakness of your human nature, I'm using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led, to de- which led ever deeper into sin. Now, you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living, so that you will become holy. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? You are now ashamed of those things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves to God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the Word of God. Um, so Paul sets this section off with his second question. We, we said there were four questions that kind of dominate chapter 6 and 7. The second question is, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? And this question, more than any other of these four questions um, raised in chapter 6 and 7, is the question I think we deal with in our context the most. The question that I think most suits where we are. Um, some of the other questions about the nature of the law um, would have probably been bigger if we were Jewish and we were raised in a law context first and then grace comes in. Yeah, then the questions about the nature of the law might have been more powerful to us. Um, but for us today, we basically learn grace first. And then we kind of learn law as like a backstory um, to grace. And so those don't hit us the same, but this question does. Like Since, since grace is here, do we just um, go on sinning um, since, so, you know, can we continue in sin since grace? And I think this is a question we've each bumped into once or twice, or maybe 2,000 times. Um, it comes up all the time. Um, we wrestle with, what's it mean to be saved by grace? How far can you take that? What's it mean that we're at peace with God? What, 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 can I do whatever I want? Since we don't live under law any longer, does that mean we can just go around doing all the things the law forbids? Where's the line? If we can do some of them, um, but not all of them, then, then, then how does that measure up. I mean, we, we wrestled all the time. We did a, a series on the Ten Commandments a while ago, you know, that, that we would all say, well, yeah, murder and adultery and, and stealing, those are pretty bad. You can't, they're in the same top ten list as, as, as disobeying the Sabbath. Like, how many of us haven't just worked on Sunday because we had to or, or skipped church? Like, that's in the same top ten list as murder and adultery. Like, how do we, where do we draw the line? Which ones are okay to say, yes, Christians can't do that? And the other ones are saying, well, yeah, that's a, that's a soft one. You know, that's, a, that's one that we, we kind of keep next to us just in case we need it. Um, it's hard. Other forms of this question go, can someone who commits fill-in-the-blank sin, can they still be a Christian? Can they serve in the church? Can they be in leadership? What's the difference between committing sin and embracing a sinful lifestyle? What are the rules? Where do we draw the line? All of these are wrapped up in what Paul is asking there. Since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? We wrestle with this question in a million different forms all the time. And we're not going to be able to unpack this entire question because this question is going to linger in the background for like two more chapters. And, and the, the answer is, is beautiful and, and a little frustrating when we get there. But we're going to treat with the part that Paul addresses this morning, this first part at the end of chapter 6. But before we do, one caveat, and this is important. This is still the vertical part of the gospel. This is still between you and God. In other words, this, this is not between you and other people, or other people and God. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Paul says, since grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Don't call the pronoun police if I mess this up. But um, this is a very, very different question from this one. 
Since God's grace has set him free from the law, does that mean he can go on sinning? Can you feel the difference? It's a very different question. As we wrestle with this morning's question, it's important to remember that this is about you. This is not about the other guy. This is not about what they're allowed to get away with. This is about in your own heart, in your own relationship with God. What are you? Paul's going to unpack how to deal with other people. That's in chapter 14. We've got a ways before we get there. Paul does deal with how do you, how do you wrestle with someone else's sins that bug you? We're going to wrestle with that question. That's not here, though. This is about you and God. This is about your life. So you've got to be real careful because a lot of us don't really wrestle so much with, am I allowed to just go on sinning as much as I want? Like most of us know if we're a Christian that, that we don't get to do that. We might wrestle with, is this sin? Is this not sin? Like, like what is and what is not sin? But very few of us, once you truly have the Holy Spirit in your heart, feel like you can just run around and do whatever you want. I think our own consciences take care of that. What bugs us is if that guy can run around and do what he wants. We don't like that at all. And that's what we like to wrestle with. Yeah, we have, like, no, I'm, I'm doing fine. Like I, like, I know where my lines are, but that, surely he can't do that and be a Christian. And so that's not what's happening in this chapter. We've got to be real careful of that. We're still in the part of this story. In chapter 12, Paul's going to shift and talk about how this lives out that way. He goes horizontal. How do we live with other Christians in the church? How do we live with our society? And, and, and like he gets horizontal later. This is not horizontal yet. This is still between you and God. Really important distinction because it changes the entire ethos of this passage. Brett, I'm sorry. I'm way off my notes. You're going to have to catch me in a bit. Um, <laughs> none of us wrestle with, am I allowed to just go sin? We, 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 I rarely see people, and usually the people that are asked that question are still in the kind of the agnostic phase of, do I want to believe in Jesus? Like, they're, they're asking antagonistically. I've never met a Christian who's, who's genuinely um, trying to have a relationship with God who, who really wants to just run around and sin all they want. I just haven't. Usually, our, usually the Holy Spirit's presence and He won't let you do that. We want to take this passage just between you and God, and we want to aim it at other people. And that's not what's happening here. We will deal with that later. Uh, it's also important because this distinction between dealing with my sins and me dealing with your sins, um, or his sins, or their sins, um, is an utterly unique characteristic of, of the New Covenant. There's a distinction. Um, as, as prophesied, Jeremiah you know, prophesied about the New Covenant. Uh, and then Jesus kind of dusted that prophecy off. Jeremiah said, I'm going to make a new covenant with my people. It's the only time that phrase is used in the Old Testament. Um, it wasn't, nobody was expecting it. Nobody was, was waiting for this new covenant. Jeremiah drops this weird thing. I'm going to make a new covenant with my people. And then Jesus, in this weird move at the, at the Last Supper, says, this is the cup of the new covenant. Like he's like going, this moment is talking about that thing Jeremiah said. Um, that phrase, new covenant, is important. Uh, like, and this blood, that my blood represents what Jeremiah was talking about. So the only, it's the only time the Old Testament referred to what Jesus is saying at the Last Supper. And here's how that new covenant reads. It's a little tough. So the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I'll make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbor, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord. I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember, I will never again remember their sins. Now, we don't have time to, get to, to totally unpack how deep this goes here. Uh, it can be taken too far, obviously. There's still issues of evangelism and discipleship and church discipline that need to fit into the new covenant. But the general idea here is that change, real change, new covenant change, Holy Spirit change, comes from the inside. The law was an external pressure that could only deal with behavior. It could only deal with external behavior. There was nothing in the law that could, that could deal with your motive. It could only deal with your behavior. It's an external pressure trying to make you act more holy. So you, were, you could totally obey the law with a rotten heart. 
And, and, and David saw that. David said, you know, you don't want bulls and sacrifice. What you want is a contrite heart. Which is interesting, because if you read the Old Testament, you'd say, no, he actually does want bulls and oxen. It says so right here. And somehow David read that and was like, that's not what you want. What you want is my heart. What you want is a, is a contrite heart. David, David was able to see through um, the law, this external pressure, and go, what God really wants is internal change. And Jeremiah pulled that out. He was like, someday I'm, I'm not going to do this from the outside. I'm going to do it from the inside. I'm going to go inside and create the change from in there. So the, the unique thing about this new covenant that we're a part of is that the change now happens from the inside out, not from the outside in. Not with threats of punishment, excommunication, and those things. It happens from the Holy Spirit morphing us from the inside out. Jeremiah was saying that the very thing that, that would make the new covenant new would be the, the no more need for this external pressure. That the change would be from the Holy Spirit coming out. And Jesus pulls off this exact prophecy and says, this is what my blood is all about. That moment Jeremiah talked about, that new covenant moment, this is what we're doing here tonight. So when Paul says, um, shall we continue in sin um, since we've been set through the law, we need to be real careful that, that we don't read that outwardly. We read that inwardly. Shall I continue in sin since I've been set free from the law? Because I honestly think that makes all the difference in the world. It's very different than shall she get to continue in sin since she's been freed from the law? Very different argument. So it needs to be way closer to what Paul says in, in Philippians. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not work out someone else's salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, having established that, um, let's look at Paul's actual argument here. He says, well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can continue sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that, that you become slave to whatever you obey? You become a slave to sin, which leads to death. Or you can choose to obey God which, God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God, once you were slaves to sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are set free from the slavery to sin, and you become slaves to righteous living. Uh-oh. Okay. Whew. My thing freaked out. Um, this passage goes pretty deep, and I actually love it. Um, uh, because, uh, and before we dive into the, the theology of it a little bit, um, this is built on true, a true biblical understanding of freedom. Um, and this is a very confusing concept um, that I, and I think Paul kind of puts it in its rawest form here, which I love. Um, but in America, we've kind of been deeply influenced by the American dream. Um, this idea that because we live in a, a special place that values freedom, we can be anything we want to be. Um, you know, you, there are no limits other than the ones you put on yourself. If you work hard, there is no end to what you can accomplish. Who, who remembers being asked, what are you going to be when you grow up? Like, remember? Like, we've all, we all ask that question. We still ask that question. You know, because the, the sky's the limit. You realize how new that question is in the course of human history? If you go back a few hundred years, they would be like, what do you mean? I'm going to be a surf. My dad's a surf. My grandpa was a surf. That's really all we have. Like, there are no other options. I was not born a lord, so I don't get to choose other things. Like, this is what, this is my lot. You know, my dad's a blacksmith, of course I'm gonna be a blacksmith. You didn't have, you didn't get to ask the question. That's a brand new question in the course of human history. The majority of human history, like, you're like, I guess I could be a thief. Maybe that's an option, but other than that, nope, I'll work the land. That's what everybody else did. Like, you didn't have this, so, so this, this kind of changes our understanding of freedom a little bit in America. Like, we, we just assume that freedom is, is American freedom. That's kind of a new concept, kind of an experiment. The vast majority of humans who have ever lived didn't get to answer the question the way we do. And that's changed um, our understanding of passages like this. In America, we've built, is built on this principle that freedom and opportunity, and those are great things. I'm not downplaying those things by any means. Um, but those are ideals that I think have kind of gotten twisted and divorced from the idea of responsibility and duty because um, those have to be married um, to freedom. And it's left us with this kind of weird belief that freedom is kind of a blank slate of opportunity, um, and that's simply never been the case uh, biblically. In the beginning, God gave Adam and Eve freedom. He said um, he gave them like, the free will to choose their own path, the free will to, to leave him. And here's how that freedom came. If you eat it, you will die. 
Like, it was a choice. It was freedom, but it wasn't a blank slate of opportunity. It was, if you go that road, it'll look like this. It was, it was, so freedom never came with like, choose your own, you know, future. No, it was like, you can choose, but it'll be death. So it was life or death. That was the choice. God's way or death. And they were given the freedom to choose, but that choice came at a cost. They didn't get to just script the future they wanted. That was the lie Satan was giving them. Like, if you eat it, you'll be God. You can do whatever you want. You'll be like God. You'll be able to write your own story. Like, you'll be able to go anywhere, do whatever you want. That was the lie that that if you choose this, you'll have freedom. And they they obviously didn't. It didn't go that way. I'm sure it wasn't long of, I don't know if you've ever tried to break ground by hand to plant something, but I got to think Adam made it about 10 minutes in before he was like, oh, I've really messed up. I have really, really messed up. I used to just pick my food off of a tree and now I'm digging in hard earth. Like, yeah, so it wasn't freedom. The reality is what Paul is articulating here is we don't break free from God and live free. When we break free from God, we become slaves to sin. And that is the human story. Adam and Eve broke the one sin that was defined. And any hope that that would be a one-off situation, like, well, maybe they just made a bad choice, vanished the second their oldest son killed their second oldest son. Sin, we're in generation two and we've got murder. Like sin obviously made it into the story, all the way into the story. And every story from that moment on tells the same thing. We're slaves to sin. We can't escape it, and sin is a horrible slave master. And the beautiful hope in this passage is that the reverse in Jesus is also true. Paul is saying we were slaves to sin, all of us, since Adam and Eve, but because we died, remember last week we established in baptism we are death, and since we died, we are free from that slavery to sin. And this is, this is crude, and I certainly don't mean to make light of slavery, but death is the one way to absolutely be set free from slavery. It's the guaranteed way out. And we died. But the big question is, because Paul is obviously steeped in the biblical definition of freedom, he isn't just concerned with freedom from something, he's concerned with freedom to something. You've been set free from sin, now what? Do you get to just write your own story? No, freedom has never worked that way. We aren't just freed from sin to do whatever we want. What happens is closer to a slave trade. We move from being sins to slave to being sins to God and righteousness, or slaves to God and righteousness. So let's unpack that a bit. Paul is establishing two masters here. He says, you are free from the slavery to sin, and you become slaves of righteous living. Remember, Paul's original question is, since we're freed from the law, should we continue to sin? And his answer is, you're freed from that master. You don't have to live under those definitions anymore. You are free from living in the world of thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. I mean, think about how much effort we put into not sinning. Like how, how, how much time the church spends defining sin and, and figuring out how to punish those who sin and, and figuring out like who to excommunicate because they have certain... Like, think of the energy... And, and effort we put into sin, still today, 2,000 years later. And how many of us uh, define a good day in terms of, well, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't break any of the big ones today. And we've been freed from that. That doesn't mean we don't have responsibility. Remember, we've been freed to something. Paul says we're actually now slaves to righteous living. The implications of this are, are huge because Paul is, is basically saying stop spending all your time and energy trying not to do something. Instead, ask yourself, what should I do with my life? What should I do now? My, the rest of my life shouldn't be a big game of resistance. A big game of now i just got to get to the end zone without really messing up. He's like, no, you've, you've been freed from that world. You died and left that world. How do I spend my life doing something good and meaningful and right? What does it look like to wake up every morning with purpose? 
And I think this speaks to what it means to be human. Because God doesn't make humans and then put them on the earth and, and their whole life is about not doing things. Humanity's calling and purpose was not to go around just avoiding the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sometimes we almost tell the story that way. Like that was the biggest element of what was going on. Avoiding that tree was the rule, but it was not their purpose. Their purpose was to bear God's image, to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion over creation and in God's place, and to have a relationship with God, to walk with God. And that's what Paul, I believe, is inviting us back to. He's saying, stop worrying so much about what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. And ask yourself, how do I live with God? How do I do that? Like, how do I actually live my life with God? How do I live like, like I have meaning and purpose? How do I raise my kids and provide for my family and contribute to my church and be a good friend and neighbor? How do I change the world redemptively? We've been invited into a whole different story that, that is not defined by what we don't do. And I honestly think it's hard to really ask these questions until you leave the framework of sin and death. This is sin. Is that sin? Am I allowed to do this? Am I not allowed to do that? When we're living in that world, it's really hard to go, how do I live out what I was created for? I mean, can you imagine how horrible of an answer that would be if somebody was like, what were you made for? Well, I know I can't do this, and I can't do that, and I can't do this. Wouldn't that be a horrible answer? Like, what, what did God create you for? What makes you burn not sinning? <laughs> like, that would be horrible. And Paul is saying that you are no longer a slave to that. You've been invited in, uh, to be a slave of, of purpose and meaning and righteousness in God. Something powerful happens when we realize we aren't a slave to that anymore. That doesn't mean we're not a slave. It means that we are a slave to our purpose now, our meaning, what it means to be human. True freedom is never untethered, unbound potential. Like, who, who doesn't play any piano at all? Like, give me, all right, so we'll say Matt. If I invited Matt up to play piano, like, he's got the freedom to hit any key he wants. I'm like, no, just let it go, man. Just, just do it. Just jam for us. We'll sing along. 100% freedom. <laughs> and I doubt any of us would, would feel freedom in our hearts as he plays. <laughs> Only with practice and structure and rules and, and, and you know, guidelines, theory, do you start to actually have freedom to play and make music and create beauty and do things. Like, freedom is not untethered potential. Like, if we were to play a game and I was like, you want to play a game? And you're like, yeah. I was like, okay, go first. <laughs> you're going to go, what, what are we playing? What are the rules? How do I, what's a, you know, how do we, you need, you need structure to have freedom to play. Like, you, the, the freedom comes from the guidelines. And that's what Paul is saying. Like, no. So can I just run crazy and free now that the, I'm dead to the law? No, that's not freedom. There's no freedom in that. Freedom is saying, I was made for something. Here are the guidelines. I was, I was created for a purpose. How do I now live in that purpose? And have the freedom to make beauty and make, make life and make love in the guidelines that God has given me. That's true freedom. So what Paul's basically saying is, is if you're asking the question, am I allowed to just run around sinning um, since now I have grace? You're missing the whole point. You shouldn't want to run around sinning because that's not what you were made for. That was slavery. That was bondage. You're now actually free to live what, the way you were created to live, which includes rules, yes, but, but not for the sake of not sinning. For the sake of being what you were made to be. I know this sounds like semantics, but it's a huge distinction. I use this example all the time. Like, uh, I don't do nice things for Esther because I'm afraid she'll leave me if I don't. That'd be a horrible marriage. Like, I made the bed. Are you going to stay? Like, can you imagine how awful that would be? 
No, I do good for Esther because I want to be a good husband because she deserves it. She's an amazing wife and, and, and it comes out of a place of relationship and, 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 and beauty because I want to do that. I'm not always good at it. I fail a lot. But I love the goal of being a better husband. I love waking up and wondering what I can do today to, to show her I love her. And believe it or not, that's the kind of relationship the, that, that we're invited into. And you can't have it if you're still living under the pressure of, of sin. And don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean that uh, there, there's no pressure to obey. There is. Like we've been saying, it doesn't mean that there's some weird freedom to do whatever the heck you want. It means the commands suddenly come from within us. From the Holy Spirit living in us. The earnest of our inheritance living in us. And those commands suddenly get incredibly specific and personal. Things like, you need to go home and apologize to, to your spouse. You know, and I, if, if you disobey that, you might as well disobey thou shalt not kill. Like, it's a command. When the Holy Spirit prompts you to do something, that's the Word of God in you. Saying, go home and apologize. You're no longer a slave to sin. You need to, so there is obedience. There is, you know, the, uh, the slave to, slavery to do what's right, to obey the Holy Spirit's promptings, but it's not an external thing. It's, it's, it's obeying what the Holy Spirit is, is asking you to do. Matt and Jess felt God invite them or ask them to move to Wellsville. They thought they knew why, and that didn't pan out, and they were confused and frustrated and honestly questioning God. Me, on the other hand, I have no questions about that move. <laughs> if they weren't in Wellsville, they most likely wouldn't have ended up here, and our family would honestly probably have no idea how to function without Matt and Jess in it. And so I can see God all over that, and I'm glad they obeyed. And I think, that's a, I think that command to move might as well be in in the Ten Commandments for them. Like when the Holy Spirit tells you to do something, yeah, you're supposed to obey it. Like actually obey it. The Torah, the law, didn't tell them to move here. But if they disobeyed it, they might as well have disobeyed any command in Leviticus. And Paul's going to dig way deeper in chapter 8 as to, as to what that means to, to, to obey the Holy Spirit and... and and then, and that that's way bigger than just preventing sin. But the Holy Spirit is actually fixated on making us like Jesus, on changing us to be more like Jesus from the inside out. In other words, make us what we are created to be. And the presence of the Holy Spirit is a really, really dramatic and paradigm-altering characteristic of faith in Jesus. It's what's new in the new covenant. It's a game changer. In fact, listen to how different life was. I say was um, in in verse twenty, and Paul Paul lays it out. He says, "When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do us right." And this is kind of deep, but like the deal was, if you sin, you die. And so once you sin, like saying I'm going to stop sinning doesn't change the contract. You still have to die. Like there's no point you can just fix it by going, I'll take it back. I, I used to hate that when somebody would say something that would offend me. I'm sorry, I take it back. I was like, no, you don't. You said it. It's out there. And there's a couple things about this verse I do want to point out. First, um, this verse makes politics in a democracy really tough. I know I've said this before, but um, democracy is a brand new thing in Christianity, in, in church history. Almost none of the theologians who have really shaped the modern structure of the church wrote about Christians in a democracy. Because they could have never dreamed about it. They could have never dreamt of democracy. They couldn't have even imagined it. The reformers that wrote so much about the church, they all lived under a monarchy. They just assumed a king would always rule. And so they couldn't have dreamt about, like, oh, here's how you vote in a democracy. Because they, they wouldn't have thought about it. Paul didn't write about it. Paul wrote, lived in an empire. So he wrote about how the church was this subversive underculture that was always pushing against the culture. He couldn't have dreamed of a day that Christians had a seat at the table and had a vote. Like, so none of our writers wrote about what we have to, to deal with in, in politics. It's, it's new. It's only a couple hundred years old in the 2,000 years that the church has been a thing. Democracy is a new experiment. Like we're, we don't have any 
any of our writers who helped shape us, we don't have their words to help us. We have to figure this out. We're kind of hanging out here um, by our own. And so, um, lost again, Brett, sorry. Um, <laughs> but so, so we don't know what it means to be a Christian and have a seat at the table. Uh, so having said that, we have to be really, really careful um, with verses like this, expecting non-Christians to live by Christian principles or rules at all. According to Paul here, if you're a slave to sin, you have zero obligation to do what's right. And this is hard in a democracy because we really want to pass laws to make people do what's right. And, and there's times when, when that bugs. I think it's important in America um, because though I do believe we should vote our worldview. That's what it means to be an American. You vote your worldview. I think our worldview needs to be shaped by biblical principles. That's what it means to be a Christian, to have your worldview shaped by the Word of God. So I think we should vote what we believe. Like That's, that's absolutely what it means to be those two things. Uh, but we have to be really careful never to be surprised when sinners sin. Like sometimes we have this like shock that sinners are sinning. Like, and they, they shouldn't do that. They, we, we live in America where those things shouldn't happen. But these people are under no obligation to do what's right. Paul makes it very clear. And so when, so when we look out and see people sinning and coming up with crazy new ways to sin, we have to stop treating them like they're the enemy, like they're, they're the bad guys. They're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. They're literally doing what the Bible says they should do. Because they're under no obligation to do what's right. Considering their spiritual status. So the next time you're on a social media feed or, and you just see craziness, just sinful craziness, do two things. First, thank the Holy Spirit for His presence in your life. That He not only inspires you, but, but empowers you to follow God. That's important. And two, pray for those crazy, sinful people to find faith in Jesus, that the Holy Spirit can begin to change them from the inside out. Don't be shocked. Don't yell at them. Don't comment terrible things. Don't pretend that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. They have zero obligation to do what's right. They're doing what they're supposed to do. And Paul said, and Paul made it clear in the last hour, while they were in that state, God sent Jesus to die for them. Showed them crazy grace. They are, they're why we're here. To, to, to reach out to them and love them and bless them. That doesn't mean we like what they do, obviously. Anyway, so that's the first thing. Sinners are supposed to sin. That's, that's important. The second thing that I want to say about this passage um, is that if you've put your faith, your relationship-driven, pistis kind of faith in Jesus, this is not you any longer. You don't live under that cloud anymore. In fact, Paul sums up the believer's situation very differently in verse 22. He says, now you do those things, but now you're free from the power of sin and become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. And this is such a powerful verse. First, um, this is an absolutely return to pre-fallen frame of reference. You are freed from that. And to the modern ear, it sounds a little harsh because we use words like slave, but um, something to note, the Bible, when it speaks of slavery, is never speaking of race-based, lifelong slavery. That's not what slavery was um, in the Bible. Uh, the kind of slavery that we participated in for like 400 years, that is, the Bible calls that evil, always calls it evil. Um, this is like part of their economic system. It's basically the equivalent of being in debt. When you got in debt, you usually entered a, a slavery situation to pay off your debt. Which also brings up a cool word that's in this um, verse. The second interesting fact about this verse is that God uses, when he says slave, he uses the word doulos. Which is a really cool um, Greek word. If a person entered into a slavery um, relationship because they owed a debt when their debt was paid and they were freed, if they liked being there, they liked serving the family, they liked their new role, they became a doulos, which is a, a, like a chosen, like a, it's called a love slave is what Paul called it. Um, and they had an ear-piercing ceremony and it was a way, they now wore this earring that said, I'm here by my own free will. I'm not, um, my debt is paid, I'm free, and I want to be here. That's the word Paul uses here, doulos, a love slave. Um, we become a love slave. Uh, but the third thing I want to get from this verse is the tense is important. Paul doesn't say, now you just go around doing holy things. And now you just go around just, just living eternal life. You just go around doing things. No, he says, 
It says uh, you do the things that lead to holiness. You're moving in that direction. You're, you're growing in that direction. You do things that will eventually result in eternal life. Yeah, we're still broken. We still mess up. We still don't always get there. But, but you're doing things that lead there. It's like Paul knows, and obviously he does know, that though we are free to live for God because of what Jesus did for us, we aren't always there yet. We're not always going to get it right. The best we can sometimes manage is saying, I'm moving in that direction. I'm heading that way. So Paul is saying we are freed from the sin-focused way of living. And we're free to ask the Holy Spirit how we can contribute to the kingdom and bear God's image well and redeem the brokenness that comes from sin. So how do we respond to this? I opened up the sermon about talking about the right tool for the right job. And that's us. That's us. God made humans for a reason. We weren't an accident. To bear His image, to reign over creation in His stead, to bring it into order, to be productive and fruitful and multiply. When I used to frame houses, it never failed that one of my guys um, would want to move a big heavy floor joist just a little bit. And rather than pull out the hammer that was made to move, hit things, they would turn the framing gun around and smack it with the back of my framing gun. $400 nail gun, using it like a hammer. And I would always hear it because it makes a certain noise. And I'd be like, that's an awful expensive hammer! Like, whenever they would, would do it. The right tool for the right job is a beautiful thing. And the short answer that Paul is giving us this morning with this whole passage is that we weren't made for sin. That's a really expensive hammer. A human sold to sin. That's not what you were made for. We've been freed from the law. This is not what you were made for. Should I just go on sinning since there's grace? No, that's not what you were made for. That's not your purpose. I know sin comes pretty naturally to us. Like it feels, Boy, this sure feels like what I was made for. It comes easy. But that's not what you were made for. You were made to bear God's image and have dominion over this beautiful gift of a planet that He's given us. And believe it or not, you're the wrong tool for sinning. That's not the right tool. That's an awful expensive hammer. I mean, turning a nail gun around works. Like it does move the 2 by 10 That's not what it was made for. You are too expensive and too valuable to use that way. You were made for better. And Paul is saying that we are now free to pursue that potential. I know there's issues with this. I make it sound easy. And believe me, Paul's going to deal with some of those issues. But right now, if you remember last week, it's our job to believe what God says. God said it. We logizame it. We believe it. God says you're free to pursue righteousness. And goodness. It's our job to believe that. To reckon it. So the way that I would love to respond to this message is, is to answer a few questions this week. In fact, ask, ask the Holy Spirit's help for this. Number one, how can I bear God's image well this week? What does that mean to you? What, what does it mean to proudly go about your day with God's name on you, knowing that you're His representative? God, I want to bear God's, I want to bear your image this week. I want, I want to, I want people to see me and be inspired toward God. How do I do that this week? If you say I'm free to do that, how do I do that this week? Ask the Holy Spirit for that. Second, how can I be fruitful this week? How can I contribute and produce to your family, to your kids, to your job, to the wider world here at church? How do I be fruitful? I don't want my life to be about resisting sin. I want to contribute. I want to do something. How do I be fruitful? How can you multiply? I have this one down. I'm (laughs) kidding. No, how do I multiply my values? How do I I raise my kids to know the God they were created to be in relationship with? Are you speaking those things into your kids? Are you speaking those things into your grandkids? Nieces and nephews. How do you multiply yourself as a disciple of Christ? Like the parable of the talents. How do I take whatever God has given me and multiply it? 
He's given me ten things. How do I turn that into twenty? He's given me five. How do I turn that into ten? I don't have to live just a game of... Like, I don't have to be the guy that just buries it. Made it through the day with no sin. No, how do I multiply what God has given me and use it for His kingdom? Finally, how do you reign this week? We were created to have dominion. You're not a victim. How do you take, wait, what can you take control of this week? Don't buy the victim mentality. Don't make excuses. What can I rule and reign over? Because that's what God made humans to do. As, as stewards of Him, of course. I don't mean just go, you know, grab, you know, I'm going to make my kids obey. No, you, you're a steward of God. You're still bearing His image and, and being gentle the way He's gentle. And creative the way He's creative. And you want to bear His image well. How do I take ownership of what God has given me as, as a good steward? What can I take dominion over? So whatever's in your power to do, own it. And if you don't even know what any of that means, wrestle with them. Take those questions home and wrestle with them. God, how do I do these things? That's what you said you made humans. That's the very first command. Let's make man in our image and, we'll, and they will be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. That was what it meant to be human in the very beginning. Before we ever ate a piece of fruit, before we ever messed up, that's what God said humans should do. And Paul is saying, you've been freed from that sin narrative. Now you are, you are free to, to, to enter into a, a, a righteousness narrative. How do I do that? How do I be what God made me to be? Wrestle with those questions. If you were created to bear God's image and multiply and be fruitful and reign, and the whole job got messed up by sin, I get that, but now I'm dead to sin. If I truly believe that, the way God, Paul said we should believe that, and freed from its power, how do I get back to that mission that I was created for? How do I bear God's image well this week? How do I, how, how do I be fruitful this week? How do I multiply this week? And, and, and how can I reign this week?